Many of you know John Lennon from the Beatles. He wrote a famous song that people often do not understand, but it's titled Imagine. It says, imagine there's no heaven. It's already not starting off great. Then he says, no hell below us, above us only sky, imagining all the people living for today. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. It really is the quintessential communist Marxist theme song with the idea of an existence free from God and the assumption that mankind has zero issues within their hearts, naturally, and is therefore capable of achieving a, a Babylonian utopia. Well, that was fine in one sense for John Lennon, who had loads of cash uh, to spare to sit back and proclaim such things to the rest of the world, ignoring his own need for redemption. Doesn't mean we need to agree with him, though. You see, Babylon was first tried, that city of man was first tried at the Tower of Babel in Genesis. It was sought again in many other great cities of, of man throughout history, especially in ancient Babylon. But the problems with these attempts is always who's at the center, man. Can there be a great city and peace that's deliberately pursued separate from God? In the Bible, there is an ideal, an ideal city that you heard about this morning where all are in unity under God. In fact, it was anticipated by Abraham, pursued by the kings of Israel, proclaimed by the prophets, and pursued again by Ezra and Nehemiah after the Babylonian exile. The goal was not that they could usher it in, but they could live their lives in such a way that proclaimed that a city was coming by God's grace. That such a city is being prepared now in the lives of those whom God has rescued by his grace. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12 this morning. 11 and 12, you'll find the text on 428 through 431 in the Bible that's provided for you in the pew. We have been studying how the people rebuilt the walls of the city in Nehemiah. Remember, Ezra is about the reconstruction of the temple. It didn't, it didn't have the former glory, but they got it done. Nehemiah about the walls. Again, it was an extension of the temple, but people being marked off unto God for worship. And they, so the wall reconstruction went through six, and Nehemiah reestablishing the identity of the people. Who are the people of God? Chapter seven, rereading the, the law and, and re-celebrating the festival of booths in chapter eight, the confessing of their sin and the rehearsing of God's mercies in chapter nine, and then the covenant renewal is where we left off last time I preached. Same uh, Sunday morning was the first Sunday of the month where we ourselves will renew our own covenant this morning. And that was chapter 10. Today we see them repopulating the city and dedicating the walls in chapters 11 and 12. The problem is clear enough. What was the point of securing the walls of the city if when all was said and done hardly anyone lived in the city? 
You see, they believe that God will one day dwell in the new Jerusalem. And that through his promises, he was currently present amongst them. If this promise, is this what we've seen rebuilt in Ezra and Nehemiah? Is this the promised new Jerusalem? And these people were hoping at least would lead there, would get there. Um, where we left off, the people had entered into, again, that solemn covenant to be a godly community, separated from the practices of the world around them, committed to God. Let's look now at, at Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12. Now, as you can see in 11 and 12, there's a lot of names. I will not be reading all those names. I expect you all to go home, read them all out, and get the pronunciations right today. Okay? Hope you can do that. So I'm going to read uh, excerpts from 11 and 12. Okay? Please pray for me. All right, let's, let's look at God's word together. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the heads of the province who stayed in Jerusalem. but In the villages of Judah, each lived on his own property in their own towns, the Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants, while some of the descendants of Judah and Benjamin settled in Jerusalem. Let's go down to verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. Verse 31, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall, and I appointed two large processions. They gave thanks. Verse 40, The two thanksgiving processions stood in the house of God, so did I, and half of the officials accompanied me, as well as the priest. Verse 43. Verse 43 really helps us understand the passage. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks be to God. What a shift has happened. Remember the beginning? The beginning of Nehemiah opens with tears and sorrows. Disgrace is the term used about Jerusalem. Now rejoicing is heard far away. Chapters 11 and 12 show the nature and extent of Nehemiah's godly leadership. That's for sure. Uh, God's grace and hand clearly was on him. It shows Nehemiah's visit was proven successful with the dedication of the walls there in Jerusalem. And God saw to it that all the details that Ezra and Nehemiah would, in their lives would lead to these efforts to restore the, the shadows of the old covenant in anticipation of the new covenant in Christ. So we are nearing the end of Nehemiah's work here to restore the city and the people. What, what a wonderful picture of, of how God can raise up a, a special servant to restore his people and wipe away their tears. We see that in Revelation 21, as we read about this morning. See, we know that God's true and greater servant, his people, his temple builder is Christ, who restores us by his sacrifice in payment for our sins. And by his resurrection, we will know only joy forevermore when he comes again. 
These things, Ezra and Nehemiah, these things were written down for us. Chapters 11 and 12 of Nehemiah were written down for us who would grow wiser and more in awe of Jesus, his church. We know that as, as the apostles thought, these things were written down for us. The Bible at large reveals that there is a city being built and marked off by God's providence and his intervention. It includes people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Its borders will include the whole creation. And there should be celebrating amongst his people right now in this fallen world because they know God's word will not return void as it goes forth and creates his people. Here's the central point, if I could tie together Ezra and Nehemiah in, in accord with the storyline of the whole Bible. If we could read this passage in light of the one who taught us to read the Bible in light of himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the central point, it's there for you in the bulletin. God sets us apart to be a joyful witness, to be a joyful witness in anticipation of the new Jerusalem, in anticipation of the new Jerusalem. I have three points, three observations to help us stay rooted in that truth, that biblical truth, that universal biblical truth from the passage this morning. And they all begin with C. Number one, the casting. The casting. This point, let me just front, this, this is how you just tell people where you're going. All right. This point is to highlight the fact that people were willing to do hard things for the glory of God. People were willing to do hard things for the glory of God. They volunteered by the casting of lots to see who would leave their properties to go labor in the city and to help rebuild it and keep it healthy. Why? Why would people leave behind what was easier to do what was more difficult? Well, they must have known the, the greater city's worth. Because of God's great worth. Because of his name was there. Reestablishing this outpost of heaven to witness to God, his word and his salvation was the most important thing to them. That's the only explanation why they would go do this. To get the point, you have to see God as most worthy, though. You and I have to have that same sense of God. And that only the spirit, friends, can reveal that to our hearts. Because our sin blinds us, and so does the world. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Listen to this. Why, Peter? That he might bring you to God. The message of the Bible is how God brings us to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as our supreme, all-satisfying, everlasting treasure. So I want to front load this point in case you get lost in the Old Testament history and the Old Testament pictures. Believer here this morning, remember today you were created to treasure Christ with all your heart. More than you treasure money and pleasure or sex or whatever else. If you have little taste for Christ, competing pleasures and treasures will triumph. So Christian, let me help you this morning plead with God for the satisfaction you may be struggling with today ask God to satisfy your heart with Jesus the Bible says satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love 
so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. Keep your, you know, that's, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus until you see him the way he is in truth. Who's more glorious than Jesus? Who is more glorious than Christ? The people here were uh, basically drew straws, is how we would say it. And those who drew, drew the short straw had to go live in Jerusalem. By the way, casting lots is not here in the passage, so we would practice that. Um, rather, we should see the people's willingness to comply with what they understood as God's providence through an impartial process. The people did trust in God's providence. Uh, Proverbs 16, you know that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So the application for us in thinking about casting lots is in discerning God's leading for our lives is this. God is very eager to reveal his leading to us then we often we are to, eager to go discover it through seeking him. And any one of us is capable, friends, of making wrong decisions in life. In fact, we could write a list of all the wrong decisions we've made in life and the ways we did not seek first the kingdom of God. But Christian believers who genuinely seek God's will, his leading in a situation, have a single eye to his glory. They're focused on God's glory and are less likely to make serious misjudgments about the big issues in life. Nehemiah decided here to tithe from the people. And 10% were chosen by lot to move from their places of comfort in the villages and their provision they had, the provision they had there to move into the city of Jerusalem. These people, though drafted, went into a tough situation for the work of the kingdom. And this was not an ideal living situation. Um, verses 6 and 14 highlight that they, they chose they had to be capable for this service so young people let me direct this towards you young people in the room you realize there will be a time when you are not as capable for service as you are right now and all the older people said amen health challenges married life adjustments and all kinds of other things you never planned on will come up Young people, offer your life to God now. Do it now. You won't regret it. Anyway, back to the text. Since this, the city is still in a, a state of despair and a, and a focal point of enemy aggression, as we've seen in this book, it's neither a safe or an attractive place for people to go live. People would not naturally want to abandon their farms, jeopardize their land holdings, etc. You know, we wonder what would happen if the average local church it took 10% of their congregation and ask them to relocate in order to strengthen and extend the work of the Lord in a location. You know, there are churches that do that all the time. Praise God for that. May God grow us to be that kind of church. The work of the ministry is tough, and we need to be willing to be drafted into service. Imagine if the churches just within the fellowship of the Southern Baptist Convention were willing to send 10% of their people to places of need. Can you imagine? Young people, get a good look here in the text of what noble adulthood looks like. Young people, square up with me for just a minute. Get a look at what noble adulthood looks like. So, young people, I'm just, going to, I'm just messing with you a little bit this morning. When your flesh is tempted to sigh about getting dressed and ready for church, just remember, that's not good. That is sad. Aspire to be those who are willing to do what is difficult. 
Anybody can be lazy. In fact, most are today. God did not create you to do that, to live your life so selfishly for yourself. You were not made to sit back and waste away in front of a screen. The Bible says our life is a vapor. It will be over before you know it. Billy Graham said many times is the hardest thing he had to do in, in his ministry is try to convince young people how quickly it goes by. Isn't it true? Church, are you willing to serve the Lord when life is tough, to be drafted into service? I mean, you can expect difficulty when you are set apart to serve the Lord's church. You can expect difficulty. And, and, and those, you know, look, you know this too, just like they did. You can't expect to get rich if you're qualified to go into full-time service and missions. <laughs> People going into ministry for the money are, are, one, disqualified according to 1 Timothy, but they really chose the wrong profession if they're going to be faithful to the word. You have to remember that God is our reward, and he does provide. The text teaches us that there were people willing to serve if called upon here. The casting. When was the last time you cast yourself before the Lord and said, I'm willing, Lord, guide me. I'm willing to be drafted to serve in ways that are not naturally appealing to me by the grace of your spirit. People will aspire to, a, to positions of praise, but they don't aspire to often serve the Lord in tough places. Even in the local church, there's an allergy to child care, children's church, security, audit committee, committee counting, and the fellowship, fellowship hall, etc. There is a lack of interest in going down to Kent Avenue to volunteer in evangelism when the town's leadership opens that door for us. Friends, are you willing to be drafted into service in, in, in all kinds of ways that are not naturally appealing to you? I met a lot of guys in school and seminary who I, I realized I do not have anything in common with. They did not see the ministry. If it did not have uh, the right uh, secular plan for them, they didn't want to. You know, what, you know what, the, what we call them? Hirelings. They're not real shepherds. And too many of them have taken the pulpits in our country. They have. They don't care truly about God's work. They're not interested in doing the hard things. They want a platform. And people do it in the church, too. Think of all those friends. Think about these people who enabled the ministry now to go forward in the city of Jerusalem. But think of those who enable the ministry of the church to go forward. Think of those who enable the ministry of the word to go forward here. Like setting up the soundboard. Making sure we have security. Making sure our finances are in order. Uh, ushering. Maintenance. Uh, ensemble. Piano playing. It goes children's ministries, members giving faithfully and sacrificially, and people praying through the week. People have to do hard things here. These chapters gives us the names of people who were willing to do it. Their names were eternally recorded for us right here. And God keeps record of those who serve. Remember that. God sees what you and I do in service to him because of our love for him. He is keeping a record, friend. Thank God in Christ, he doesn't keep a record of our rights and wrongs. He cast our sins as far as the east was from the west. The judgment seat of Christ when the refiner's fires purify all the way, all the things we did. And that gold is remaining of what we did for him, for his glory. We'll stand and, and receive our reward. These volunteers 
who willingly were drafted. And they weren't asked, are you sure? What about your holdings? What about your comforts? Are you crazy? Don't you want to be happy? Thank God there's none of that here in the text, is there? Like Jeremiah, they chose to remain with God's people, even though it might have been safer and more comfortable elsewhere. There's something to say. There's something, to, to, there's something about staying with God's people when things get tough. And these names that are written down here are here for our instruction. The casting. God sets us apart to be a joyful witness in anticipation of the new Jerusalem. Number two, the city. The city. Again, let me front load. This point is to show us the beauty of being a part of God's city, his people. His people, the church, who will one day inherit the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And they will be resurrected, redeemed, and fully glorified, is what I mean, to enjoy it, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. But look at verse 1, Jerusalem. It's called Jerusalem, the holy city. It's, ho it's holy only because it's marked off by the word of God. That's, the only, that's what ma makes it holy. We've seen Jerusalem not be the holy city. God's presence and, 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 and grace removed from them in Ezekiel. Remember? The glory departs. It becomes a wasteland. We've seen the city not be the holy city. Here it's being marked off again by God's word. It was the place at, it was the place at this time of redemptive history that God had, again, set his name. But see, in the past, people took that for granted. They always just assumed, well, God's always going to do, do and be for us just like we want him to be. They misunderstood. It was a holy city worth setting up so that the people could, by faith, observe God's word and the law of Moses in anticipation of his promises being fulfilled one day through Messiah, Christ. In fact, we should pray for the Jerusalem that exists today. They're not marked off for Jesus. We need to pray the gospel would go forward to them today. But here the people wanted the city to be holy to the Lord so that God is prioritized in their lives. The city is to be holy unto God, not, not holy to a people who need, uh, not holy uh, uh, in the sense of because of the people, but holy because of the Lord. It was to be a place where God is obeyed, where God is honored. It's not about exalting a people. No, it was about exalting God. The entire city is now being dedicated in this text to the service of the Lord. It's becoming a holy city unto the Lord. Instead of the abomination of desolation that's been before, it's now time for revival. And so this renewal foreshadows that final renewal, not of a small city, but of the whole creation that's going to come down like a bride adorned for a husband, new city. God's people will inherit through Jesus Christ. But these things were written down for us to look deeper into them and God's purposes revealed in Christ Jesus, who is God's personification of wisdom and revelation. <clears throat> the mention of Judah and Benjamin and Levi here uh, as the nucleus, it, it, it just jump out to us. They, these had stayed with uh, David's heirs to form the kingdom of Judah when the rest had broken away and now the future of Israel lay with them and those who had rallied to them from the other tribes. And what we see is God preserves his remnant. He preserves a people 
through his promises. The line of David was not broken. And the son of David, friends, would go on to appear in Bethlehem. Read the genealogy in Matthew's gospel. He would be born of the Virgin Mary, just like Isaiah said he would be. And so, beloved, if that's true, then you can look back. You can bank on the fact that if God fulfilled his promise to David to bring forth a son, he will fulfill his promise to you of heaven if you trust in Christ. You can rest tonight if you are anxious that one day God's going to unveil his glory. And let me make a note here about the listing of the names again. It's similar to 1 Chronicles 9. And the purpose was to demonstrate that a representative cross-section of the nation was now living in the holy city. They all had ties to the past and their records. That's what we're seeing here. Were certifiable. As you see those names given, records are certified. This wasn't sloppy. This was careful record keeping. And the section teaches again that only those who have been certified can live in this city. And it prefigures that only Christ can certify those who will forever live with God. So let me just pause here for a moment. Friends, there is a, there is a condition to the unconditional love of God, and that is you must be born again. You must repent of your sins and trust in Christ. We are all unholy before God. Our sin defiles us before God Almighty who is holy, who is light and in Him is no darkness at all. We were born in sin. We sin because we are sinners. We have a natural bent towards rejecting and rebelling against God. We are hindered in our own sin nature from naturally desiring God because our desires are for other things. Many of them fine and good things, but they're not God. And we take good things and we elevate them to God-like status. And that makes us idolaters. What I'm trying to tell you is this. Outside of God's grace, we are all lost. The world says we can find ourselves in ourselves, but God says we are so lost. The world says we can really live it up now, but God says we are dead in our sins to his voice and to his person. The world says we can have it all, but God's word says we are destructive. Excuse me, we are destitute and headed for destruction if we die without Christ. What can we do? What are we going to do with our lostness, our helplessness, our defilement, our sin debt? The ways we have transgressed God's law time and time again. What are we going to do with the death that our sin, that, the, and the death that sin in our lives has brought? What are we going to do with that? Who can help us? God can. You see, God loves you. He proved it by sending his only begotten son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, added to himself human nature, body and soul. And he did that to live the perfect life in substitution for the life you and I never lived. And then he died the death we deserved on Calvary's cross, bearing our sin debt and God's wrath, shedding his innocent blood for the guilty like you and me, for whoever would believe upon him. And God raised his son back to life on the third day. And you can be made holy. You can be made holy and cleansed by, listen to this, trusting in Jesus Christ. What's better than that? He made him, the one who did not know sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God has the authority 
to credit to our broken, indebted count of sin per, the perfect record, the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that you and I can stand before him cleansed and forgiven. He has the authority to do that, and he'll do it today for any and all who repent and trust in Christ. God can make you a part of his royal priesthood. He can bring you into this holy nation, this holy city through his holy son. He commands every one of you and me to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ for salvation. Today's the day you need to receive Christ if you don't know him. Have you done that? Are you on your way to heaven is what I really want to press you about. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you been made holy through Jesus to dwell forever with our holy God? I want to be on that list, friends. How about you? I know my name is there because his word says so. I trust his promises. How about you? Not just to be saved, but to serve. I want to be on that list to serve. God can do this in your heart today. So pray for God to do it in the hearts of more people, beloved. Pray for the Holy Spirit to change minds and to change hearts through his woo, wooing love and conviction. And this list also reminds us that our Father sees and records what his children do as they serve him. Friends, even if others don't recognize or appreciate our ministry, we can be sure that God recognizes it. And the story once again holds up two cities for us to ponder. You're either part of the city of God, or you're part of the city of man. Those are the two cities. We are either prioritizing God's rule or man's rule. Our lives are either dictated to us by the loving Savior, Jesus Christ, who's the King of Kings, or by the world, our flesh, and the devil. You're in one of those realms. If you make it in God's kingdom, it's because of God's grace. You know, many, most folks are short-sighted. We all can be. We fail to see the invisible realities of God. We think only about our short existence, and we have such trust in our own discernment, such confidence. Wow, we can be so confident of our faculties, our ability to discern and to see and to hear things. It's amazing. And so little dependence on God. We can fail to see that God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So if you think this age is all there is, and even believers can fall into that too, just start deprioritizing God, reprioritizing the things of this world. You can see it in the decisions that Christians make all the time. But friends, if you're of this world and you've never been rescued, and this age really to you is all there is in your fundamental beliefs, you are to be pitied, not me uh, and believers who believe in the resurrection of Christ. Don't pity me. I have no regrets serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and neither do believers. But if you are living for this age, if this is as good as it's going to get, you are the most pitiful person in this room. You're to be most pitied, and we are heartbroken for you, and we pray the Spirit of God would break your heart today and turn you from worshiping yourself and sin and turn to Christ. Because you're missing out on God's Son. You're missing out on Jesus. And you will miss out on eternity with the Lord where there is joy forevermore and substitution for where there is suffering and sorrow and pain forevermore. 
Look at this section once again. It teaches right now that God sets apart a people for himself. And that carries all the way to the book of Revelation, which Dan read for us this morning in Revelation 21. This idea of a special people, a city on a hill. Can you see it? From the New Testament, it's pictured right here. It's foreshadowed right here. You're getting the idea of a city on a hill right here, pictured for you, set apart to the Lord in the Old Testament. Authentic Christian living has its own order of priority in our lives. God first, others second. This is what this is about. God first. And we should pray for this revival to take place all over the globe. As you can see, this city is about seeking first the kingdom of God. And it's evident in their sacrifices and their praises and their desire to obey the word. So look, La Plata Baptist Church, do you, do you view our church set apart this way? That we are to be a city on a hill. We, can, we confess that we're a, a people called out, separated in, uh, uh, from the world unto Christ in our church covenant. And so what we do as a church has significance to God. We take on his name. We assemble in the name that's above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus. We were, I was teaching in the, in the class this morning that the, the 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us that we are ambassadors. Can you imagine? He has made you and I ambassadors. Growing up, I remember my dad saying to me often, son, don't, don't forget you're representing your mom and I tonight. And there was that sense of like, I, I, as a boy, I was already like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm going to be the one that's representing the family. I didn't have a lot of confidence that I would do it well. A bit of a knucklehead. And I still feel that sense this, as a Christian today, redeemed by Christ, that he has made me and you ambassadors. We know what we're like, right? I hope that we do. I hope we have a, a growing sense and awareness of how pathetic and shallow and selfish and wicked we can be. And he has chosen redeemed sinners like us to go be his ambassadors because we have received forgiveness. We have received uh, washing. We have received regeneration. We have received, received, received. Of course we can tell people what Christ has done for us. We take on his name in this assembly. We are ambassadors according to 2 Corinthians. We covenant to live holy, to make sacrifices, and to be his witnesses. And all God's people said, Amen. We covenant to walk with God carefully in our homes, in our workplaces, in our public lives. Do you see yourself, is what I'm asking yourself, as joined to the special city of God? As a representative? What do churches that are committed to the word and homes saturated in the word and individuals committed to living according to the word, what do they do in their, uh, what do they have in common in their assembly? They prioritize God. They are a city, a community like no other. In the New Testament, when these people covenant together in the faith, they are a church comprised of Christ's disciples, whom he said in Matthew 5 are a city on a hill that shines the light of truth to a dark world through their love and through truth. Today, we're to be a, a little city. We're built upon the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who has made us a lighthouse? Jesus has. Who has made us a lampstand? Jesus has. 
built upon Christ and the apostles. That means his word being a light to the world, a holy city that points to the greater city to come. You like this city? Where do you see the one that's coming? So parents, let me encourage you to build this theology into your conversation with your young people and your kids. Tell them the story of how the church is to be a holy city under Christ. Show them how this city is to be different by God's grace than all others. Remind them that eternity is coming. Death is coming. Live not for this age, but the one to come. Give your life to Jesus. The author has the whole Old Testament history uh, behind him, and he knows that God's dealing with believing Israel was about setting them apart in a fallen world to enjoy him and to be his witnesses. We are to be put back here by these people. They're amazing. They were, they were surrendered, not my will, but thine. What a thought, discovering God's mind about their future. You know, they were just pri took priority over every other consideration. This is a unique city. This is living for his glory. And we're to live our lives before the face of God as we confess this morning. The world says you need more distraction. You need more screen time. You need to make yourself more stupid is what the world wants you to do. And keep on scrolling until you are so hardened against the things of the truth. But God offers everyone here today something worth focusing on himself. The world wants us to cope, but God in Christ gives us hope. The world offers us self-improvement. God calls us to self-denial. The world teaches self-worship, but God alone is worthy of worship. And today, God calls all people to stop exalting creation and exalt the one who made it all. He declares to all, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Indeed, the Lord is great and highly praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Rising splendidly is the joy of the whole earth, Mount Zion. The summit of Zaphon is the city of the great king. The praise that resides amongst God's people is the direction of God's plan for the whole creation. All that rejoicing that we had going this morning, that's where we're headed, beloved. It's the dress rehearsal. Imagine a city that enjoys God's presence forever. You can't manufacture, I mean, it, it, you can manufacture emotions, I understand that. But the joy of the Lord cannot be manufactured. It is given by the Spirit. And one day, we'll, we'll know it totally unencumbered. You know, I think about Dave, who's had knee, knee replacements. Other of you in here who've had uh, knee replacements, hip surgeries, all kinds of things. Young people, don't be fooled. One day, you're going to see these people jump for glory and for joy. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow. It's going to be a city like none other. But does our life tell that story? Does our life right now say we're headed for that city? God sets us apart to be a joyful witness in anticipation of the new Jerusalem. Number three, that brings us to this, the celebration. The celebration. Now, I know I cannot scratch every itch and every detail in covering these two chapters for you this morning. And nor do I want to try to do that. I want you to think about this passage in light of Jesus. Some of you, this might be the last sermon I ever get to preach to you. 
So I'm going to make the most of my time with you. Friends, in this final point, I want to convey that all the work that's going on here, all of the sacrifice, all the concentration is going to be worth it when they're gathered together for the, with the Lord. Notice in chapter 12, verses 27 through 30, how the preparations of the, for the day you know, you know, were just exciting. There's a healthy approach, by the way, for kindling our emotions in worship gatherings. There, there, there is a healthy place for that. So all, this, all the ritual and all the observance, not to be manipulative, but they are ordained means of grace. In the New, if the New Testament emphasizes what is inward and spiritual in worship, it has a place, to, to, uh, too, for the natural means of encouraging and stirring us. You see, our Lord went to Gethsemane, fortified not only by prayer, but by a ceremonial meal and corporate singing before he went, didn't he? Matters which engage not only the spirit, but the body and the senses. And today, we're going to use one of those means of grace, ceremonial means of grace in observing the Lord's Supper. So there are people who go too far and want to do uh, dramas in the church, in the corporate gathering. I would say that would go outside the bounds of Scripture. You can yell at me later about that. Here is one of the ordained dramas we have in the local church to see and observe and to be edified. And we know it's given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. To let the touch and the taste and the visual nature of it remind us afresh how precious Jesus is. And how exciting it is to prepare and to drink it until he comes. Oh, it looks weak to the world, but it's mighty in the hands of God. People have been saved as the Lord's Supper has been observed. You know that? The text wants us to imagine a city that enjoys God's presence forever, filled with people in harmony, purified. That's also happening in the text, the concentration consecration that's happening purified to enjoy it and filled with unending celebration and the lord's supper is to stir us to see with faith that there is a celebration coming like none other it will be the concert of the age it will be the party that begins an eternally energized and unencumbered celebration of god's majesty glory love and redemption and as you get older man you don't you think about i don't know if i want to party too long and get to bed You'll be totally energized in glory. Note the emphasis was on the joyful praise in the text here on the part of all the people. Singing is mentioned eight times in this chapter. Thanksgiving, six times. Rejoicing, seven times. Musical instruments, three times. And then we see that, that, that section. Look at verses 31 through 38. The two processions get on top of the wall and they go opposite directions, all ended up at the same point. That had to be something to see. I wonder if they were looking across at each other, you know, rejoicing as they, I don't know if they could see each other or not, but just, just a little bit of imagination of how exciting it must have been. Both groups meet at the temple, and the service climaxes with the sacrifices to the Lord and the ministry of the word. The people were bearing witness to the watching world that God had done the work and should be alone glorified. It wasn't like, Nehemiah's number one. No. No, glory to God alone. The enemy had said that the walls would be so weak that a fox could knock them down. Remember that in chapter 4? But here they were, standing on the walls. Woo! What a testimony to the unbelieving Gentiles of, of the power of God and the reality of faith. It was another opportunity to prove to them this work was wrought by our God. 
And, 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 you know, it was just encouraging the people to march up there, to see the results of their labor, and to realize what had been done, not just by one person, but by the people of God. And friends, we should expect God to unveil to us in glory all that he did through his people. The joyful march was their way of saying, we claim for our God all that he has for us, just as those in the past claimed the land by faith. Friends, this is about taking ownership, renewing our commitment to God. I love the praise that comes out from here. Reminds me of Hebrews 13, 15. By him, Christ, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. You know? Makes you want to break out with, he's done so much for me. It does. It makes you want to celebrate. Notice the character of their celebration. The people offered their praise in accord with David, what he had put down for them. Multiple times it says that in the passage. They notice that was, that's a character. It was biblical, the character of their celebration. Uh, notice it was thankful in verse 12, 24, 27, 31, 38, and 46. It was joyful in 27, 43 through 44. Loudly, amen, 42 and 43, accompanied with various instruments, verse 27 and 35 through 36. It wasn't a time for muted, uh, uh, sour, meditative worship. There was joy in the house of the Lord. It was a time for pulling out all the stops. Miss Pamela, you and I would have got along good with these people. <laughs> Praising the Lord enthusiastically. Friends, is your participation in worship marked by all those characteristics? Is it biblical? Is it marked with thanksgiving, with joy? Is it loud, accompanied by instruments to the glory of his praises? Do you review the blessings? Just coming into worship, do you review the blessings God's bestowed upon your life just today? Then look at your blessings as they look back through your life and in your family and in God's provisions for you. Do you know the joy of being forgiven and accepted by God? Do you allow yourself to get loud in your praises as you get loud for other things? And do you thank God for music that stirs your heart for Jesus? And God, raise up our uh, more and more joyful people. Friends, we ought to be the happiest people on the planet. Why? Because we know Jesus. We know life. We know forgiveness. We know love. We know by the grace of the Spirit the truth about God. And we have security and foundation. I've not built my life upon sinking sands of this world, but upon the firm rock that is Christ. It was not only the professional musicians who expressed praise to God. You see that? Verse 43, the women and children got involved in the singing. Amen. Kids, sing out when you're here. So great was the people's praise, the joy of Jerusalem was heard from a far distance. That's the kind of reputation we want to have. You know, I'm not sure about that La Plata Baptist Church, but man, you can hear them praising the Lord. Man, they love the Lord there. The shout was pure joy. The result of this service was also a plentiful supply of, of 
what was needed to sustain. You see the people's giving near the end of the passage. People gave not grudgingly or out of necessity, as Paul would say, but joyfully and gratefully. That's the mark of revival in the life of the church. The people start giving. And once again, we see that our material gifts are really spiritual sacrifices to the Lord if they're giving, given in the right spirit. Well, friends, it was, a, it was a high and holy day in Jerusalem. A happy day because the work had been completed and God had been glorified in a wonderful way. Friends, we should aspire for that to happen here every time we gather as a church. Because we know there's, there's, a, there's coming a day when there'll be no more sorrow, only joy. And for those in the room who don't know Christ, I pray you would know that before it's too late. Let me conclude. There's only one way the world would be one, and that's under the reign of the King of Kings. So friends, are you counting the cost of today for the value of tomorrow in Jesus Christ? Are you living now in preparation for the city that is to come? Are you celebrating Christ today knowing that it's what you were made to do forevermore? Let's pray. Jesus, be exalted in this place to the glory of God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. Edify us, build us up in praise and godliness, Lord, unto you as we observe the Lord's Supper today. In Jesus' name, amen.